This is the Flying Field Podcast. Flying Field Podcast is a service of rcplaneviews.com and the Flying Field blog. This is episode 126, The Heroes Around Us, a reprise. This episode was produced the week of August 3rd, 2014. Hello, modelers, and welcome to this edition of the Flying Field Podcast. This has been an active summer for me, and I hope it's been a good one for you all, too. I've had the chance to attend some fly-ins outside the 100-plus degree temperatures in the Phoenix area, as well as work on a video project for my YouTube channel. What was anticipated to be a pair of 10 to 15 minute videos on some of the techniques to freshen a worn foam model turned into a much larger project. Add to that the uncomfortable temperatures in my workshop and, well, things stretched out a little. Probably the biggest news in modeling circles is the FAA's decision to regulate model aircraft operations despite the special rule for model aviation the Congress placed in last year's funding bill. As this podcast is recorded, the comment period on the interpretation to the rule is still open. If you haven't heard about the FAA's actions, you should visit the AMA's website and go to the Government Relations blog. There are also several video interviews on the internet where AMA leaders discuss the interpretation and what they are doing in response. I know a lot of times folks' eyes just glaze over when discussing government administrivia, but this is a big deal and it's worthy of your attention. In the last podcast, we replayed part one of an interview given a couple of years ago by a member of the RC club I belong to. Byron Clark is a World War II veteran and was a co-pilot on a B-17. He flew 33 missions over Europe. He was one of the fortunate ones who completed a combat tour without being shot down, captured, or killed. You may recall the movie The Memphis Bell and the celebration that was held when that crew became the first to make it to 25 missions, which was the first goal. Later, with losses mounting, the target number was increased. In the summer of 2011, one of the traveling flying fortresses stopped at the airport in North Phoenix for a few days of tours and flights. One of our club members knew the team and was able to arrange a flight for our former B-17 pilot and, with an empty seat, put me on too. After the flight, we adjourned to the restaurant at the terminal to hear some history from someone who lived it. This is part two of that interview. You'll notice some crowd noise and dishes clinking in the background, all part of the restaurant sounds, while we chatted with our friend, Byron Clark, who is part of the crew of the B-17 Swamp Fire. You know, a lot of the people who'll be who'll be watching this are going to say, "Okay, let's let's ask some airplane questions here." And so, uh, as you think back on those thirty-three missions, were there any that were particularly memorable for you? Well, I I think if you go to that that site on the web, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, all you have to do is go to Swamp Fire B seventeen, and you'll 
it will lead you to our homepage of of that uh, uh, of Swamp Fire, and you'll learn a lot uh, about the airplane and the crew and so forth. And you'll also read about <clears throat> the one mission where we dropped uh, uh, glide bombs uh, on Cologne, mm -hmm. uh, Germany. Uh, Cologne's in the Ruhr Valley, one of the uh, most heavily uh, defended part of Germany. There were just hundreds and hundreds of 88 millimeter flak guns there. And uh, we dropped those bombs uh, somewhere around 30 miles from the, the town itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they had wings on them. And I'd like to say, this is all explained. There's even pictures of them on the web. Of the, but that was kind of a memorable thing because we, we, we trained with these things. They put them on there. They're 2,000 pound bombs and with wings on them. And they hung on the bottom of the airplane. And we trained with those things so many times that I think we damaged some of them, so that they spun in whenever we. Some of them spun in when we turned them loose. Now, is that but, what they called the grape grapefruit? Yeah. Yeah, I I think of myself as kind of a World War II history buff, and I've never heard of that. That's right. just very interesting. The kind of the first guided missile. They had some kind of gyro stabilization. Yes, in, the, is that right? the the gyros in it were connected to the the vacuum system in the airplane. Okay. And we have a vacuum system that sucks the air out of the boots. So they they uh, they disconnected up the vacuum gyros, and and of course the gyros were spun up the whole time. And when we turned the bombs loose, of course the the rubber tubes were disconnected, and they were on their own. The gyros were were uh, stabilizing the uh, ailerons or elevators or what I can't remember mm -hmm. whatever it was on those things. But some of them did spin in, and some of them landed on Cologne because I remember. When we turned, uh, the sky above Cologne uh, was absolutely black with, with flak. Hmm. And uh, they probably wondered where those bombs came from. You know, they were, yeah, a good place were, not to be then, that yeah. night, huh? So yeah. it, it, I, I guess the fact that it, it was one of those experimental things, probably people say now, well, this is crazy, but it was an idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, they picked our group to drop the bombs. I think uh, outside of that, uh, the other one was a long... A very long mission to Marienburg, Germany. It was clear over in East Prussia, and it was an 11-hour flight. Well, we ran out of fuel on the way back and landed at a fire base on the Ipswich on the bay on the uh, shore of uh, uh, the North Sea there. But uh, we weren't completely out of fuel, but uh, mm -hmm. just about. And uh, I, I hate to say this because we don't run, we don't fight our wars uh, nowadays the, the way they did then. Uh, but I remember the colonel saying at the end of the briefing, <coughs> this was Easter Sunday, this mission I'm talking about, and he says, we have a time, so we'll get them when they're coming out of church. Now, you don't, you wouldn't hear anything like that nowadays. It's politically mm -hmm. totally incorrect nowadays. But that's the way we fought the war in those days. That's the way, that's the way it was. And I, you know, I don't mean to temper it or warp it one way or another. That's what the colonel said. Mm -hmm. So the idea, and you can, you can imagine uh, a the Norton bomb site was uh, pretty accurate. But if you name uh, aim the bomb site at the railroad station downtown, and and the formation is is spread out over a mile, and everybody drops their bombs at the same time, uh, you're carpet bombing the sure, city. Sure. So the, the Germans did that to London and Coventry, and, and so they started it, and uh, we finished it. It's well, a shame that, uh, you know, 
all those innocent people get killed, but it's happening today, and I guess it happens in every war. Indeed. War is a terrible thing. I mentioned to you earlier that uh, I was a bomber crew member about 35 years after you were, and yeah. uh, and I remember that crew members like to play practical jokes on one another, and sometimes we would get in trouble. Uh, as you think back, were there any particular times where... Uh, you had some fun with one another, or maybe got yourselves into a jam that had to be bailed out of? I don't know. Those guys were shooting crap all the time, and I, I didn't do much of that. <laughs> but I will say the one thing, you've, I've heard this before happening, that the relief tube is in the bomb bay, in the back end of that airplane, to, and if you have to urinate, well, it's a little funnel there, but it goes down the tube, and on the outside of the airplane, there's a tube that... That's face to half, face mm -hmm. little strip. Well, if you turn it around the other way, he's going to get it in the face. So that that happened on occasion. From time to time. <laughs> uh, so, so you wanted to make sure the crew chief was happy and not mad at you, so he wouldn't like turn that baby around. At the <laughs> Absolutely last minute, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> and we had a great crew chief. Uh, that's mainly uh, uh, Nick is mentioned in that uh, website. Uh, Nick, uh, I'd like to say, is still alive. He, He's 90 years old and had a uh, birthday last, uh, this year, early this year, or that, late last year. He lives in Bellevue, Washington, and uh, he and these men <clears throat> kept our airplane airworthy, and they worked. At, they, they also uh, should uh, have their hats taken off, too, because they worked at night and in the rain and everything else keeping the airplane airworthy, patching the holes in it and doing what had to be done when, mm -hmm. whenever we got, when we brought the airplane back to them. And so you see in that website that uh, our airplane, Swamp Fire, was the first one to fly 100 missions uh, without an abort. Mm -hmm. And that's not for us to brag about, that's for the ground crew, the ground crew. maintenance people too. For, so they did a great job. And, uh, I talk with him occasionally, and well, I guess I'm here because of uh, Nick DeSalvo. Now, when those massive formations of B-17s would fly over Europe, um, they would fly in tight formations. You know, the belief was that all of the guns would be able to protect you all from the, from the fighters. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to fly in one of those really big formations. You know, you you, you concentrated on flying off the wing from the guy, or if you were uh, a leader in a squadron or an element while you you concentrated on keeping the airplane in its, in its position. It was hard work because the airplane, of course, doesn't have power steering. And there were, there were times when we got in weather and the, the formation would disappear. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're sitting there in weather for half an hour flying off of a, just the wing, just one airplane as you can see, and amazingly, you'd pop out in the clear and everybody would still be there. It was incredible mm -hmm. to, to see that, uh, even to us, for that, for that to happen. But it was hard work. The captain flew formation. Uh, when he got tired, why, the co-pilot flew form mm -hmm. formation. Uh, occasionally, there were mid-air collisions uh, when, uh, you know... Uh, you would lose your, what do you call it, vertigo. Sure. You'd get vertigo and slide off into somebody else. And I, I don't know how many airplanes uh, the 8th Air Force lost on the kind of mid-air collisions, but I'm sure uh, there, there were many. And they also lost uh, uh, 
to collision during the forming process. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. all the 8th Air Force uh, bases were in a very small area of East England, uh, eastern side of England. And when, when you all took off and you have a thousand airplanes up there milling around, the, the, the leader uh, of the formation would, would fire off a flare that uh, in, indicated he was the leader of your group. So if it was a red-red flare, you were looking for a red-red, or mm -hmm. maybe it was red-green-red. And these would be continually there. The flare chute is missing out of that airplane, but it was a place up at the top where you could stick the flare gun in there and shoot the flares out. And so this is what you looked for. And uh, so you circled around a beacon, a radio beacon. That that's that's what uh, what they call a buncher, and uh, you'd all form on the leader. Hmm. And sometimes this took uh, maybe 30 or 45 minutes for everybody to get together. And then, of course, they had a specific time where they wanted you to cross the coast so that you wouldn't be mixed up with other people, so that you'd be strung out from, you know, as far as you could see, B-17s. Well, that was interesting because I always read about that. It was like it was altitude and timing was the, the main components of, of gathering those mass formations. And, and right. it just struck me as, as amazing that you'd put all those airplanes you know, without radar and without the kinds of nav aids that we have today, and you'd still get a bunch of them out, yeah, out over the, uh, the out of the channel. And, into <laughs> and you know, it's amazing. It just happened. You know, we would we would go to the briefing, and that's all we would know. They would say, "What's this is the flare to look for, and this is the time we're across the coast." And you didn't worry about that because you just follow the leader. Uh -huh. And in, in most cases, the uh, the leader, when you saw the leader open up the bomb bay doors, well, your bomb bay doors went open too. All you do is flick the switch. Mm -hmm. And when you saw the bombs fall from the leader, why, uh, we used to call him the, the, the toggle air because he hit a toggle switch. <laughs> if you weren't the leader, it wasn't a real important job out there. No, the that's <laughs> true. In most cases, you could probably, I, I don't like to say it because I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate the bombardiers, but uh, there's a lot of missions you could have got along without the bombardier. Because there was an, uh, a, uh, a gizmo in an airplane called an intervalometer, and you could set it for one second, two seconds, five seconds, and you'd hear click, click, click as the bombs left, you know, mm -hmm. rather than a salvo. So it depends on how they wanted to drop the bombs. That's the way you set the intervalometer. Well, after the war, you did a lot of flying. You were airline pilot for a lot of time. As yeah. you think back, and as our conversation here comes to a close, what was your... Your favorite airplane, what did you enjoy flying the most? I think the Lockheed Electric was because it was, uh, it's not because of its dependability, because you could do anything with it. Mm -hmm. The airplane, would, uh, it was just amazing. You could, uh, New York to, I mean, to Boston, to LaGuardia, New York, you could come over LaGuardia at 10,000 feet, southwest bound, make a circle and land to the northwest. The airplane would come down like a simonized anvil. I mean, if it did the, you know, and and then once you got it on the ground, all you had to do was slip the engines in reverse, and the airplane, you know, I mean, the people if they were strapped in, it'd be in the front end of the airplane that would stop. And and getting off was the same way. It was uh, it was incredible the way that airplane would perform. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, Arn, uh, is there anything I should have asked? Is there anything that you'd like to say or talk about that I uh, haven't gotten to? I think I shot off my mouth enough. <laughs> no, I think you've done uh, quite well to, 
I'm getting a rough idea of, uh, of what went uh, over there. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, no, I think you did a pretty good job, Jim. And yeah. Well, I appreciate it. It was uh, it was great hearing the stories. I like I say, I, I read it. I you know watch movies about it, but then to actually have the opportunity to talk to somebody who who lived it, who's a fellow club member, it's just it's been great. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate you having me. It was my pleasure to do my part in whacking Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. Since that interview was recorded, Byron continues to fly as he reaches deep into the 80s age-wise. You can learn more about the Swamp Fire by searching Google with the terms Swamp Fire and B-17. Well, that brings us to the end of another Flying Field podcast. I've posted some pictures of the B-17 we flew in and the interview with Byron. You can find them at www.flyingfieldblog.rcplaneviews.com. Click on the podcast category on the right side of the page. This was episode 126. Until next time, happy modeling and fly safe.